The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Well, thank you, Michelle. And I'd like to thank uh, Keck Institute for helping us organize this. Um, I will not take much of your time. Uh, the three nominal co-chairs are Kurt Cutler, who may be still asleep, uh, Bruce Elmagreen, and myself, and people who did really most of the work are Michaela Vasneri and Ashish Mahabal there. Um, so in good Caltech tradition, there is almost more chiefs than Indians. Um, and I think I'll just let Mikhail introduce our first speaker. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm very pleased to introduce Badri Krishnan. Uh, Badri is a, is a scientist at the Hanover Albert Einstein Institute. So in Germany, uh, if there's an institute in theoretical physics and, physics and they call it Albert Einstein, it means it's a general relativity. It also means it's a, a it's really the center of gravity for Germany and perhaps for all Europe in uh, general relativity and gravitational waves. Uh, Badri did his uh, PhD at Penn State, so he's now foreign to, to the US. And he's actually been straddling all this time, I think, the line between fundamental uh, general relativity and data analysis in LIGO, where he has many responsibilities. Um, uh, this said, he's also uh, skipping a LIGO meeting this week to be with us, so, so one more reason to, to be grateful, and it's all yours. Thank you, Michele, and thanks to the organizers for inviting me here. So I'm very happy to skip the LIGO meeting uh, once in a while. <laughs> okay, so I've never done something like this in a one-hour uh, talk, so let's see how it goes, um, or less than one hour. Um, so the, this is the plan of, for the talk. So uh, start, the first half of the talk will be mostly about um, GR and gravitational waves and basics. So I'm assuming that most of you have seen this somewhere or the other before, but I'll just review it um, um, just so everybody's on the same page. And the second half is going to be sort of a crash course um, of the very, very basics of uh, uh, data analysis uh, for ground-based detectors, because that's the one that I'm most familiar with. So. I'll spend a little bit of time on binary and spiral signals and a little bit of time on continuous wave uh, signals. I'll explain what these are <laughs> during the talk. And I should say that uh, I'm personally responsible for very little of this uh, material, so it's a review of uh, things, so please ask questions uh, uh, during the talk if you have any. So the starting point uh, for any of this is, of course, Einstein's equations. So we have a space-time in which I have a Lorentzian metric. I'll call the little g. And the field equations look like this, where the R is the Ricci tensor for, the, uh, um, for this particular metric. And this T is the uh, stress-energy tensor for matter. And uh, we'll assume that uh, the solution uh, to this is uh, basically the Minkowski metric plus a small perturbation. And we'll expand everything linearly in, uh, in H. And we'll work in coordinates where H is, uh, components of H are small. And uh, just like electromagnetic theory, we have a gauge freedom associated with uh, coordinate transformations of this form. So x goes to x minus some uh, psi, where psi is, again, an infinitesimal coordinate transformation. And under this, h transforms um, in this form. And this is exactly analogous to what we have in electromagnetic theory, where we have a gauge freedom for, from a scalar, f. And then after a bunch of algebra, um, some of it is tedious, but uh, it's more or less straightforward. You expand the field equations in power and, and linearly in H, drop all the higher order terms, then you end up with this, where this is simply a wave equation for this quantity H bar, where H bar is H minus um, one half H times eta, and this H is the trace of H. 
So this H bar is a trace reversed um, uh, uh, perturbation. And we have to impose a gauge condition which is analogous to the Lorentz gauge conditions, that is uh, this particular thing here. So this is partial derivative of H bar uh, is zero, traced over one index. And we still have uh, additional gauge freedom which is, uh, uh, which has satisfied this condition. So we can, we have to satisfy this. We can still make further transformations sat uh, satisfying that condition. And we can show, one can show that um, uh, choosing this uh, gauge transformation in the right way, you can make all the non-spatial components of H to be zero. So in the end, all that matters are the spatial components of H. And even there, if you have a, a transverse uh, uh, wave, and you can show that uh, this H must be orthogonal to the direction of propagation. So in the end, you just have a two by two mat uh, matrix representing the perturbation. So that's exactly written in this form here. So I'm assuming here that the wave is traveling along the z direction, so that I just have the x, 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 x y, and the uh, um, just uh, non-zero in the x, y uh, uh, space. And this must be trace-free, so this is, uh, that's why it's, it's h and then minus h, x, x here, and it's symmetric, so that's why these two are also the same. So in the end, you just have two independent components, that, that is h, x, s, and h, y, y, and it's conventional to write this as in terms of a basis which is of this form in the xy plane so that I have h is a combination of uh, this e plus and the e cross here. And this whole procedure is known as a transverse traceless gauge for gravitational waves. Um, and now uh, a little bit of uh, geometry here. So we have, uh, we can make a rotation in the xy plane um, of this form uh, for an angle psi and under this rotation, then this basis transforms in this form, exactly like here, but with the psi becoming a twice of psi. And I'll assume that for the rest of the talk, we have only at the most elliptically polarized wave, so that we can find a frame such that the h plus and the h cross look like this. So here, a plus and a cross are constants. Um, eta is a slowly varying function of time, and phi is a phase of the signal. So this is sufficiently general for our purposes, and we won't have to go beyond this at any point. So uh, now we can look at the effect of um, such a wave um, on, um, on, let's say, a ring of freely falling particles in the xy plane. And um, you can show it's not, it's not difficult that if I have a ring of freely falling particles here and the wave is going, uh, let's say, into the um, screen, so then this ring of particles uh, is sheared. It's first uh, sheared one way, then the other, and then it repeats. Uh, and then for the cross polarization, it's the same thing, but the whole thing is rotated by 45 degrees. So that's all straightforward. Um, and now let me talk about some detectors uh, that are current and planned. So the ones I'll focus on are really the ground-based detectors, so that's LIGO, GEO, and Virgo. Um, these operate all of them in the range of 10 to um, 1,000 hertz. Then we have the space-based LISA detectors, so that operates typically in um, uh, the millihertz frequency range. And then we have the pulsar timing arrays that operates in the uh, nanohertz uh, range. Um, so let me start with the uh, ground-based detectors. So we have the LIGO detectors, um, um, two of them uh, in, in, in Hanford and Livingston. So that's uh, Hanford, that's Livingston, and that's the little geo detector, the 600 meter. And this is uh, the Virgo detector in Peace I don't have a figure for a picture for that here, but it's uh, similar. So all of these are L-shaped. And I'll explain more about this later. So basically, they have lasers going back and forth 
in, this, in, the, in the two arms, and then you want to measure the uh, displacement uh, between the two arms um, using uh, interferometry. And then these are uh, noise curves. So these are the power spectral density for the uh, design uh, um, as, as, as they should be for the LIGO, Virgo, and the advanced LIGO detectors. So uh, the LIGO detector, there are these two here, those are currently being upgraded to, uh, to the advanced LIGO phase, so that'll happen in the next few years. And uh, for that, uh, the noise curves of these will go from this one here down to here. So uh, what is shown here is a power spectral density, so which is uh, essentially um, noise uh, decomposed into frequency. So, um, uh, so you see that LIGO will increase its sensitivity by a factor of roughly 10, going from now to advanced LIGO. And then Virgo is this, it's a different shape of the noise curve here. Then we have the LISA detector. So uh, this is a bit tricky for me to say because there's a bunch of uh, redesigning going on for the LISA detector. But nominally, it's supposed to be uh, a space detector, which is uh, in a triangular configuration. And um, don't take the numbers um, literally here because this will change. Um, so these are supposed to be, again, interferometric detectors. So I have. Um, laser beams going back and forth in all the arms, and this is going to be going behind the Earth uh, in its orbit. And each spacecraft contains two test masses in free fall, isolated from everything else, and um, you want to measure sort of the distances between those uh, um, test masses and infer gravitational wave signals from there. And then you have finally pulsar timing arrays. So this is a picture of what might be the square kilometer array. I stole this from the SKA website. So these, so pulsar timing arrays are based on observing highly regular millisecond pulsars. So these are, these are extremely accurate clocks and you can observe the pulses from them very, very regularly. And the idea is that you correlate the output, uh, the, the, the timing residuals from different pulsars in the sky. So essentially you have a model which explains everything that you know uh, astrophysically except for let's say gravitational waves and other things. Um, and uh, the idea is that uh, if you correlate uh, the output of uh, the, the residuals from different pulsars and different points of the sky, the only thing in common between them is gravitational waves. You can extract that signal from doing these correlations. Um, so for this, you need to have a number of um, um, very um, regular uh, pulsars and very accurate uh, and, and very large um, uh, timing arrays. Uh, and this is already, I mean, so I'm not an expert in this field, but I'm told that uh, uh, the folks who do these kinds of things expect to have detections in the next um, five or 10 years. And they might actually, uh, if LIGO doesn't step its game up, so they might actually find something before LIGO does. But on the other hand, they are very complimentary LIGO because they work in the nanohertz range. So, um, um, so it's not all, it's all friends here, so there's no competition, of course. So uh, all of these detectors relies in some way or the other on photons moving in a, uh, in a space time which has a gravitational wave. Um, I'm still in time. So, um, so now uh, let me go. So for this one here, we have, of course, the lasers going ba uh, back and forth between the arms of the um, detector. For, again, for LISA, we have uh, laser beams going uh, around uh, this configuration here. And for the pulsars, uh, for the pulsar timing arrays, we have the photons, which are the radio beams um, coming from the pulsar um, to, to Earth from the different directions. So in each case, we have photons traveling in a gravitational wave space-time. And the effect we're looking for is a slight change, uh, is the effect of the uh, 
uh, gravitational wave on the path of these photons, on the frequency of the photons. And um, so for this now we have to do a little GR calculation in which I sh uh, shine a photon, let's say starting from O, to reach a point P, and uh, I point in a particular direction, let's call the directions by these direction cosines alpha, beta, and gamma. So we emit a photon starting from O, which reaches a point P, and let's say the frequency of the photon starting from here is nu. Um, then we have to find uh, basically null geodesics in this space, in which I have a gravitational wave going, let's say, along the z direction. And uh, we have to find the effect of that on the photon. It turns out the, the photon path is not exactly a Euclidean straight line. And, and the, the gravitational wave lenses the path of the photon and weighs the photon frequency. So this is sort of the heart of the calculation of finding the response of the detector um, to a gravitational wave. And uh, we can do this calculation and we can show remarkably that the change of the frequency of the photon, that's delta nu over nu, in going from, let's say, O to P, and assuming that the wave is traveling in the z direction, is given by this equation here. So the details are not important. The, rem the remarkable thing is that this depends only on the difference of the gravitational wave perturbation between the point O and the final point P. So H plus is the H plus at this point here, and H plus prime is the value of H plus at the point P, and similarly for H cross, and alpha beta are the direction cosines um, that I've sh shown in this figure here. And um, if I write this a bit more geometrically, then you can show that this can be written exactly uh, in this form here, where these x's are the unit vectors, and the delta H is the difference in the perturbation between the point O and the point P, all right? So this is sort of a nice little uh, GR calculation, and um, now you can apply this now to the ground-based detector, so that's all I'm gonna do. So in principle, you can take this result and apply this to pulsar timing arrays and to LISA as well, but at the moment, I'll just, uh, since I don't have too much time, I'll apply this only to the ground-based detectors. So for the ground-based detectors, all of them have typically this configuration here. So I have, there's a very cartoon version of the actual uh, configuration, but this is enough for our purposes. So we have a laser beam uh, that comes in from here. There's a beam splitter. It goes up one arm and up the other arm, and they interfere when they come back, and this is the output um, port. So the measurement that is done is the phase difference, uh, so Michelson interferometer is a phase difference between uh, the beam as they come back and the, this beam as it comes back from this arm here. And uh, we assume that the uh, wavelength of the gravitational wave is much larger than the size of the detector. So that's typically okay for the kind of sources we're looking at for LIGO. Um, and also we assume that uh, the motion of the detectors is ignored within the time that the um, beam is going back and forth. Um, so if you do this and you can measure, then you can calculate the phase difference um, of the, uh, of the uh, 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 photon as it comes back uh, to this uh, beam splitter, and you can show that the phase difference is given by this formula here, uh, where this omega naught is the angular frequency of the, of the, of the laser, L is the length of the, of the arm, assuming that both, both the arms, X and the Y, have the same length. Um, and this H is a combination of the unit vectors along the detector arm, so y is the unit vector along the y arm and x along this arm here, and this hij is of course the perturbation of the gravitational wave. And, and this is sort of uh, the result we're looking for, so this can be written conveniently as um, f plus h plus plus f cross times h cross. And um, 
In principle, uh, what's hidden here is the polarization angle. So remember, I told a little white back that we can find these uh, principal axes for the, um, we can find a frame in which the um, wave is exactly A cos phi and, and the other one is B sine phi. And that frame depends on a particular choice of frame uh, in, in the sky. So that's why that angle is hidden inside the F plus and the F cross here. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, the important thing is that these depend on the sky location of the source. And if I have a source that is lasting long enough, then these are functions of time, F plus and F cross. If I have a source that is only a transient source, then these are basically constants that depend just on the polarization angle. Okay? And we'll look at both of these examples in a minute. Um, so that's um, the response for, uh, uh, for the detector uh, to a gravitational wave signal. And now let's look at possible sources for these things. So in this talk, because I don't have too much time, I'll consider only uh, two sources here. So the first are in-spiraling binaries of compact um, objects. So these can be neutron stars. These can be black holes going around each other and then merging. This is a cartoon that I think everybody steals from Cape Thorne. So this is supposed to represent the phase in which the two um, objects are slowly in-spiraling into each other, emitting gravitational wave. This is supposed to be the complicated merger phase, and this is supposed to be the final ring down. So this is um, um, the initial in-spiral phase. Something happens here which is complicated, and then the final damped sinusoid for the ring down. Uh, and um, this portion of the waveform is known, again, from analytic calculations in, uh, in GR. For this one, you need to do uh, numerical simulations. Again, for this one, you know the waveform from, again, analytic calculations. The other thing I look at are waves from rapidly spinning neutron stars. So the, the picture you have to have in mind is something like this, which have a neutron star, which has a small bump. So it's not exactly a bump of this form, but it's uh, more of a lower, lower order multiple bump. But in any case, a neutron star, which is slightly deformed from axisymmetry, and uh, that's spinning rapidly, and in doing so, it's emit gravitational waves. Okay, so these are the two signals I look at in the stock. And in doing so, I'm skipping a bunch of things here. So I'm skipping um, searches for unmodeled burst sources. I'm skipping searches for stochastic backgrounds of gravitational waves. But I just have time to cover these two things in this talk. Um, OK. So this is um, sort of a typical uh, signal that you might expect from two objects from the, from the in-spiral and the merger and the ring down. So this I'm showing, what I'm showing here is H plus, essentially. And this is the result of a numerical simulation in which, which covers a decent part of the in-spiral, then I have the merger, and then the ring down. And in this case, this was um, an equal mass system. And, uh, but I just wanted to look at some feature of the waveform, which is that this is what is called a chirp signal. So frequency of this thing is increasing as I go towards the merger. The amplitude is also increasing. And at some point when the merger happens, everything uh, then decays um, exponentially um, to zero. And once again, we have analytic descriptions for this part of the waveform. We have numerical calculations for this, uh, for the merger, and then we have analytic calculations for the ring down part of the waveform. Um, and the full waveform, um, I mean, you can do this uh, in some cases, but it's hard to describe analytically. And this is one of the goals of um, our research in GR. Um, and now, just to give you sort of some more details of the calculation uh, for the in-spiral phase. So one assumes that uh, we have a circular orbit um, 
so we have these two objects going on in circular orbits, the two-point objects, and we assume that the orbits evolve always circularly. So it goes from one circular orbit to the next one, to the next one, and it goes slowly, adiabatically um, through this process. And in each, in, uh, uh, and in each case, you know that um, it is doing so because it's emitting gravitational waves, and the leading order in V over C, where V is the orbital velocity of, one of, the, of any of the components here, so V over the flux of energy that's lost from the system is given by the Einstein quadrupole formula. So that means that you can, at least to leading order, easily calculate um, what the orbit, how the orbit evolves and how the waves are emitted from this uh, system. And in fact, you can do this also at higher order, but the calculations become more and more complicated. So I'll just present you here the leading order calculation. So it turns out that the dominant component of the signal has twice the orbital frequency. You can see that roughly from um, the way the system evolves because uh, there's this approximate symmetry in which you take this thing, uh, so you have equal masses, and you just interchange them after half an orbit, you get the same thing back roughly. So that's why the dominant component is um, twice the orbital frequency. And at leading order, the waveform is elliptically polarized, at least uh, if you ignore spins and, um, um, and complicated effects of uh, spin precession. And in that case, you can write the waveform um, uh, approximately as this form. So this is, um, a slowly varying function of time, which um, TC is the time of coalescence. That is, appears in this leading order calculation to get an infinity, but this is actually not infinity because if you do the actual simulation, you actually find it. it's an artifact of the approximation that you're making. But at least as it stands here, this will diverge as you T goes to TC, and uh, this is uh, uh, the thing inside the, uh, uh, in the cosine. So again, you have uh, TC minus T raised to the power of five eights, and then if you include higher order corrections in V over C, then you have additional terms that appear both in the amplitude and in the phase inside. And actually, this, all of this is much more natural in the frequency domain, but I won't write that for you here. And you can, in fact, compute the Fourier transform for this signal um, analytically, um, and that's going to be very useful for a signal analysis. Um, okay, so this is then uh, at least the very basics of uh, binary and spirals. And a few more things just to uh, uh, give you some numbers. Uh, so in principle, the inspired signal is of infinite length. So if you assume that the two objects start infinitely far away, then they'll take an infinite amount of time till, uh, till they merge. So the waveform lasts infinitely long, at least far back in time. However, uh, that's not very important for us. What's important is that starting from some cutoff frequency, let's say F low, the time to coalesce is finite. So starting from this frequency, let the system evolve, let it merge, that's a finite duration signal. And at, again, to leading order in V over C, the duration, uh, so this is the time it takes um, uh, to go from some frequency to, um, to, to merger in which thing to kind of infinite approximation. So the time it takes is given by this, and I'm assuming here that the systems have, uh, the mass are equal, and I don't have any corrections to the mass ratio, and this is just a leading order calculation. Um, so this here, uh, I'm writing everything in geometric units. So M is the total mass of the system. So M1 plus M2 written in geometrical units. So M is units of uh, seconds or uh, of time. And uh, F low is the lower frequency cutoff. So this is dimensionless. And this is uh, units of time. And this is um, the time it takes for the system to merge starting from a uh, uh, lower cutoff frequency here. The important thing here is that this power of eight over three, it's a very strong power of this lower cutoff frequency. So it's almost a cubic, it's almost a cube, right? Eight over three is like nine over three, that's a cube. 
So, it's, so if I reduce this lower cutoff frequency by a little bit, the time it takes to merge it is going to be much larger. So for example, if I have two neutron stars, uh, both of them, let's say, 1.4 solar masses, and I take a cutoff frequency of 40 hertz, that appropriate for initial LIGO, then the chirp lasts for about 140 seconds. <clears throat> for advanced LIGO, if I change this to 10 hertz, then the chirp is much longer and lasts for almost one and a half hours. Okay? And that's all the effect of this um, eight, eight thirds here. Right? And this is going to be an important thing, why, reason why advanced LIGO searches are much more intensive competition because of much longer waveform and um, you have many more cycles and this is uh, really much harder. Um, and again, uh, uh, useful, but again, it's very, very rough. A measure of the ending frequency of the signal is given by this equation here. So this is what is known as the ISCO frequency, the innermost stable circular orbit. So if I take a Schwarzschild black hole and look at orbits of particles around it, so this is the frequency of the innermost stable circular orbit in a, around a Schwarzschild black hole. And this gives you a rough estimate of the frequency that this signal will cut off at. And um, if you do this for a neutron star binary, so you get that the number is more than 4,000 hertz, and it's much too high for LIGO. And if you have a higher mass system, then uh, you can actually see the merger within the de detector bandwidth. So this is meant to give you a rough feeling for what the signal looks like. So again, for binary systems, uh, as far as LIGO is concerned, these are transient signals. Um, the long, the, so um, the higher the mass of the, of the signal, the, the shorter the signal it is. Uh, lower mass things last much longer. And um, again, for a neutron star system, which is expected to be the first detection that LIGO makes, the signals are two minutes roughly in initial LIGO and one and a half hours in advanced LIGO. And um, I haven't, again, this is all very approximate because I haven't, I don't have any corrections here for the mass ratio or for spins or anything, but this is enough to give you an idea of what to expect. Um, so now, let's see if we want to search for such a signal. Um, so the parameters that we want to search for are the overall amplitude that contains the distance to the source. That's um, one over the distance. We have the coalescence phase and the time of coalescence and M1 and M2. So the coalescence phase is um, this thing that appears in here. It's not quite that because there's also um, a correction from the beam parent function, but roughly speaking, there's a phase that appears inside uh, the cosine here. And we have the neural, I have not shown the amplitude here, so that's a one over the distance um, that's appearing in, in front. And um, then we have, of course, the two masses of the, uh, uh, of the system, and then uh, we want to search for all these, these parameters. And in principle, if you have, um, uh, for different mass ranges, other parameters as spin, eccentricity might become important and might have to take, take into account. That makes the search very complicated because then you have a higher dimensional parameter space to search over. At least for the simple case, you just have M1 and M2. And um, you, uh, as, as we'll see, the searching over the phase and the time of arrival is, 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 is very straightforward. The basic tool here is very straightforward signal analysis, so that's match filtering and in which you take the product of the signal, um, that you, the data x tilde, in the frequency domain with the expected signal, and you divide that by the uh, power spectral density of the, uh, of the data, and then you take a Fourier transform of that, and that allows you to search over uh, time of arrivals very efficiently. So this is the basic, basic tool that everyone learns in signal analysis, 
And this is, again, from the basis of a lot of analysis done in LIGO. Um, and it turns out, I mean, it's very easy to see that, that you can search over the initial phase very easily by adding um, um, uh, the waves in quadrature. So essentially, you take the wave in which uh, the part of the template in which you set the phase to zero, you take this uh, wave and, and you set the uh, initial phase to pi over two, that gives you the i. So essentially, all you have to do is compute this quantity here. The difference here is the real part um, versus not the real part, but in any case, um, this allows you to search over the initial phase, and this Fourier transform allows you to search over the um, time of arrival of the signal. And you normalize these uh, uh, templates according to this relation, uh, according to this total power here, and uh, you compute the H0 for some fiducial effective distance, and let's say you call that one megaparsec. And then what remains to be done is a search over some suitable template bank in your space of M1 and M2. So essentially, for each point in M1 and M2 that you've chosen, you have to do this Fourier transform. That searches over the time, and you search over the phase um, in this way automatically. And the final thing that you want to compute is this ratio of this output uh, Z, Z of t divided by uh, uh, sigma. So this is the amplitude signal-to-noise ratio. And if you have ideal Gaussian noise, and this is essentially all that you have to do for a single interferometer search. Um, so if you just have uh, uh, ideal Gaussian noise, then you just have to set a threshold on row, let's say, or find its maximum, and that's your most likely a location for uh, a signal in time. In practice, this is not good enough. In practice, the data is far from Gaussian, and you have a number of glitches which can mimic a signal. So if you just uh, rely on this match filter, then you'll find that your sensitivity is very, very weak and you have to do better than that. So essentially what one has to do is to find other properties of the signal which are not mimicked by glitches. So find something in the signal, some property which is different uh, uh, for, for typical glitches that you find in the data. And one of the most useful things that uh, one has found uh, is the frequency evolution of a signal. So what I mean by that is you, if you look at this um, waveform here, the frequency always increases in time. Um, slowly, well, it's slowly initially and then it's more rapid. So the idea is that if you sort of sp split up the signal in, into different frequency bins, so essentially you take uh, uh, the first part of the waveform, let's say covering from some, somewhere to this part of the waveform here, and then you look at some part of the waveform here, and you split up, you bin up your frequency space such that you have equal contribution in the different frequency bins, then that is something that, is, uh, that you know for the signal and that is different for glitches. So just to state the same thing a little more formally, so um, what we want to do is look at the contributions to the SNR from different frequency bands, and if you just base everything on the signal and on the expected noise of the detector, you can define frequency bands, delta F1, delta F2, delta Fp, such that in each band you have the same contribution to the overall SNR, let's call it rho. So given just a signal at, for a particular M1 and M2, you can compute what these bins are in frequency, delta F1, delta F2, and so on. Let's say we have P such bins. On the other hand, you can compute the contribution explicitly from the data. So essentially, you repeat the same calculation here, except the integration ranges for over the frequency band of interest. Okay? So essentially, you compute Z, but not from zero to the Nyquist frequency, but over this, uh, these different frequency bands. 
So that gives you the observed contribution from the frequency band, let's call that zi. That's what you get, that's what you expect. You can turn this into a statistical test, and this is, looks very simple, very naive, but it actually is very effective in practice. And this is really, uh, without this, we couldn't do any of our LIGO searches. So essentially, you take what you uh, get, subtract what you expect, that z over p, square that, you sum that, as a statistic that you can use and turn it into a statistical test to test for um, difference of liches versus true signals. Again, if you just had Gaussian noise, then this would not give you anything new. If you just had Gaussian noise and match filtering is the best you can do, but it, it turns out that for this particular problem, this is a very effective veto um, between glitches and signals. Yep? That's a good point. So in principle, one has to be very careful with how you set this up. You might make this too stringent, and really, if your model is a little bit off from the true signal, you might actually end up discarding true signals uh, from this calculation. However, um, the people who model these waveforms, and you can compute, I mean, so I wrote down for you the signal to at the leading order. And by now, this has been computed now to much higher powers of V over C. And now people really trust that, at least for the in spiral phase, that they understand the signal reasonably well. So at least for the in-spiral phase, one is, uh, and that, is, that means for lower mass systems, that you can actually do this binning in frequency and be sure that you won't miss any, that you won't discard any signals. But as, you, as soon as you get into the merger phase, and as soon as you sort of end up, um, that this part of the signal ends up being in your, uh, in your detector bandwidth, then things get a bit tricky, because this is not modeled very well, this part of the signal. So then you have to be very careful in how you choose the bins for the chi-square, how, how stringent you make the chi-square test. So that is really, um, that is subject of research. But for, the, uh, but for the lower mass systems, that is neutron stars, which is what our gold standard is, which is what the first detection should be, for that things are okay. Right, so this is uh, sort of, just to give you a sort of 10-minute um, impression of what a data analysis looks like for binary and spiral signals. So now let's go and look at um, continuous gravitational waves. So these are these neutron stars that are spinning rapidly, which are slightly deformed from axis symmetry, and these are emitting um, uh, signals. So once again, the signal is elliptically polarized, so I have H plus and H cross that is now simpler than before. So it's sim simply a constant times cosine of phi and a constant times sine of phi, okay? Um, and again, the A plus and the A cross uh, depend upon the inclination angle to the, uh, from the axis of the star to the line of sight. So that is this angle eta. It doesn't matter for our purpose. I, I won't really use this anywhere in the talk. The important thing is that this is simply some constant times cosine, some constant times sine. So it's simply a sine wave in the rest frame of the star. So uh, as I said, the iota is the pulse orientation with the line of sight. Now the important thing here is that the amplitude of the signal, that is this quantity H0 here, that is model dependent. That depends on how deformed the star is. 
for binary systems, that was something intrinsic to system that no matter, there's no uncertainty, right? If GR is correct, a binary system, then it's orbiting around each other that will emit the signals that I showed previously. For these systems, there's no reason that neutron star has to be deformed. It could be completely axisymmetric. There's nothing preventing that in principle. So in principle, the emission of signals from a neutron star of this form could be zero. So, and you need some modeling of the astrophysics and of, of the structure of the crust and everything to come with some estimates of how deformed a neutron star can be. And it might be that it's not deformed at all. It might be that it's very highly deformed, that's very good for us. But this is something that's model dependent. So, this epsilon is very important. So, that's the sort of the, um, that's the ellipticity. So, that's the difference of the moment of inertia xx and yy divided by the principal moment of inertia izz. And that's, um, really the crucial thing that tells us how deformed the star is now, strong the signal is. And this is the rotation frequency of the star, and these are distance to the star, as, as you might expect. Um, so this is uh, straightforward. There's one complication here, which is that if the frequency, if the, if the phase were exactly sinusoidal, then again, we wouldn't see anything. Why is that? Because the reason that we, that we have some non-zero amplitude is because there's some energy being lost from the system, right? Some energy is being lost and it's rotating and it's spinning down slowly because it's losing energy in the form of gravitational waves. If it's not spinning down at all, then it's not losing any energy, so it cannot be emitting any signals, right? So uh, you have to have some spin down and some higher order. Um, if I just extend or expand this phase in powers of um, uh, tau minus tau of zero, with tau of zero is some fiducial star time of observation, then you have a phase which is simply a polynomial in, um, in, the, in the time. And if, the, if f dot and f double dot and everything are zero, then I just have a sinusoidal signal, and that is not observable. That will not lead to anything. Uh, unless you have some other thing happening to a star, like accretion and something, which is keeping it fixed at a particular frequency, but just a star all by itself, which doesn't have spin down, cannot emit anything. So this is how the signal looks like in the frame of the star. But now the complication is that, uh, unlike for the binary system where the signal was so short that you didn't have to take into account the motion of the de detector during the uh, uh, time of the wave. All right, that's bad. No, 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 I hope I don't need help. It works. Um, so in this case, the signals last for much longer. They last for weeks or months or years in this case. Okay? And, um, and, but on the other hand, the signal is very narrow band in frequency. So for the other case we looked at, we saw that the signal frequency would sweep from the lower frequencies like 10 or 40 hertz up to hundreds of thousands of hertz over some minutes or hours. In this case, the signal is much, much more narrow band in frequency, but it lasts for much, much longer. Okay? And the reason that there's a, a shift in the frequency is because of two effects. One is this intrinsic spin down, f dot and f double dot and so on. And the other thing is the Doppler shift because of the Earth's motion around the sun. And also, if the system is in a binary, then the, motion, the star is moving in a binary system, so that's an additional shift of frequency. But if, if that is not the case, if it's isolated neutron star, in that case, we just have to look at the orbital velocity of the Earth. And you know that V over C for the Earth's orbit is roughly 10 to the minus four. So then the Doppler shift uh, that you expect is 10 to the minus four times F. 
So if I have a star, uh, if I have a kilohertz signal, then this is a Doppler shift of like a tenth of a hertz. So that's what we expect from such a signal. A tenth of a hertz in, in frequency, a bit more maybe because of spin down, but lasting for weeks or months or years. Okay. And even by the standards of uh, gravitational wave astronomy, these are very, very weak signals. Um, for the case of the binaries, I mean, um, those, those are relatively strong signals. I mean, they're not strong, but they're much strong compared to this. So for this thing, in order to detect them, you have to integrate, uh, you have to fold the power from much, much longer uh, observation times. So in this case, if I just look at the raw detector uh, power spectral density, and I look at the amplitude of the signal, so the difference is like a, a couple of orders of magnitude. So if I just take a short data stretch, make a Fourier transform, you won't see anything. You have to really do this for much, much longer, so weeks or for months, to even to see any signal for this case. Um, so this is now, uh, I'll just present now some uh, results from the LIGO searches. So um, the most important result so far, I think, is uh, uh, the search for the crab. And this is a picture of the crab in X-ray by the Chandra Observatory. And um, I still have 15 minutes. So um, this star is about two kiloparsecs away and it's observed to be spinning at this frequency and it's spinning down at a rate of, um, of this much. If you do the numbers, assume the standard sort of moment of inertia for the star, you see that it's losing energy at a rate which is about 10 to 31 watts. And if you assume that all of this energy is going to emission of gravitational waves at twice the rotational frequency, then that sets a limit for the amplitude that you can expect um, from the system. The true value of the amplitude is smaller than this because, of course, not all of this uh, energy is going into gravitational waves. In fact, most of it is not going into gravitational waves. Okay? But anyway, as at least as one upper limit that you can find indirectly on the amplitude, this is as good as any. And if you do the numbers for the crab, you get something like 10 to the minus 24 for the amplitude um, H0. Um, and then it would be nice if we could actually measure this thing um, for the crab, look at the data we have, look at the frequency near, um, um, near, uh, near 60 hertz, and you can uh, set limit on the uh, amplitude of the wave which is lower than this number here. So that is something astrophysical, right? At least uh, as much astro as we can do in LIGO without a detection. So um, this has been done for, um, um, in fact, a while back. So. Um, the details aren't important here, so um, we have again some parameters that are the overall amplitude, and then again, just like we had um, for the binary system, we have a phase, we have an inclination angle, and we have the polarization angle. You can, um, from the observation of the star, you can set priors on the inclination angle for the star and on this polarization angle. That's the other. So I have a star; it's got two angles of this in the sky. So one is the uh, angle that's the principal axis, and the other one is the angle. Uh, uh, the other angle in the sky, right, for this uh, uh, system. You can uh, use observations on this from the pulsar wind nebula, and you can set sort of priors on, on these things. And you can uh, then do a search, and you can set limits on the amplitude with some degree of belief. So in a Bayesian uh, calculation here, you get that the, the, the limit on, on the amplitude is 2.7 times 10 to the minus 25. This is much smaller than this number here that you got from indirect electromagnetic observations. This is nice, so we can say that from observations in LIGO data, you can say that not more than 4% of the energy is going into gravitational waves. 
would be nicer if we could say that we found something, but this is what we have so far. Um, again, you don't have to take these priors that you get from the observation, but you can also choose uniform priors in these parameters. In that case, you get a slightly worse result because you just have more statistical trials that you have to do um, in, in the search, and you get a slightly worse result for the um, amplitude. And this corresponds, this number here, if I take um, um, this, this number here, so that corresponds to an ellipticity of about 10 to the minus four. And that's in fact on the bit of a higher side as far as these things go. There are some models which um, can lead to these high ellipticities, but most standard ones do not. Okay? So again, it's, the fact that we didn't see something is not that surprising. Hopefully when we have advanced LIGO, then we do much better than this, and we can actually make a detection. Um, so now, just to give you an overall picture for all the different known pulsars, let me just make you, um, it's a bit of a busy plot. On the x-axis here, we just cut off here, that's uh, frequency. Um, it goes from uh, one hertz all the way to 10,000 hertz. On the y-axis here is the amplitude of the signal, that's um, this quantity h naught. Um, so that goes from 10 to the minus 23 here to the minus 29 here. What these are, are what you expect to be able to see uh, with, um, this is initial LIGO, this curve here, this is the Virgo detector, this is advanced LIGO, and these are the proposed ET detectors, the European telescope detectors. And these are, here are the up spin down limits for all the known pulsars that are found from the ATNF catalog, okay? So if something is above the line here, uh, then it means that the spin down limit is stronger than what you can actually uh, search with that uh, instrument. So this dot here is the crab, for example. This is the Vela, also for which it's been has been beaten very recently. And these are some other pulsars um, around here. This is some of the interesting ones for various reasons. But the, the take home message is that in the advanced LIGO era, you'll be at this level here. And you can see there's a huge number of pulsars that we can beat in the spin <coughs> And there's some for which we'll beat them by quite a bit. So Vela, for example, is going to be there by quite a bit here, the difference between here and here. So it's quite likely that with some years of observation for advanced LIGO that you can actually say something very interesting about these systems. Okay? And again, for these systems, I'm assuming that integration time is two years, a fully match filter search for two years um, of, of observation. And then finally now, um, this is now uh, what I spend most of my time doing. So this is... Uh, searches for neutrons that are not seen electromagnetically. So it's all well and good that we can do these searches here, but these are really very easy searches. So these are not digging deeper. So these are really one point in parameter space or a few points in parameter space, and you don't need any big computers to do these searches. On the other hand, um, if you have something that you do not know where it is in the sky or in the frequency, then you have a problem. Why is that? Because as we saw, we need a long observation time to actually um, have a large SNR, right? We need weeks or months or years to do that. On the other hand, if we don't know where they are, then you have to uh, search, or do a blind survey in frequency spin down and sky location, and possibly higher order spin downs as well here, okay? So, and um, it, it's unfortunate that the sensitivity goes at the square root of t. It's a very weak power of the observation time, so if you just do a match filter, your SNR increases only like the square root of t. On the other hand, um, 
the number of templates that you have to search increase much more rapidly with D. It goes um, for, it's a bit complicated, but for shorter observation time, less than a year, the number of templates goes roughly like the fifth power of the observation time. So the computational cost goes like in by the sixth power of the observation time. So if you, let's say, go from one week to two weeks, your computational cost goes up by a factor of two to the six, and your SNR goes up only by a factor of square root of two. So you need long observation times, but this really kills you computationally, so you need something, um, some other methods for doing this. So simply doing a match filter over the full observation time is not going to be enough for this case. Um, so this is what I said here, so that these fully equated match filter searches are only uh, feasible for known sources, like the crab or some other things for which you have some information a priori. For the blind ones, you have to do something else. And what I'm going to describe here very, very briefly um, um, is sort of the state of the art. So the most sensitive method that we've found so far is to break, it's like a power folding method for radio astronomy searches. So essentially, you break up your observation time into n smaller segments, each of them of length, let's say, t coherent. For each of the smaller segments, you do a coherent match filter search. Then you fold the power from each of them. Um, um, and then you get the total SNR by this combination of the power from the individual segments, okay? Um, so essentially what this means, and this is really a lot of work that goes into these last two bullet points here, which I don't have time to get into. So what you do is you basically choose one common template bank for the match filter over each of the segments. So in each of the segments, you do a simple match filter based on what is called a coarse template bank. And then um, you have the result of the match filter output from each of the segments. Then you have to combine them to get the final SNR. And in doing so, you need a finer grid in the parameter space. And that's known as the fine grid. And that's a refinement in the sky or the spin down. And that it turns out that it's a fact that the refinement is not large enough that it kills you computationally. You can still do the search, and it's still feasible. Okay. And um, um, in fact, a method just like this is currently being used on a largest computing platform that's called Einstein at Home. So it's like SETI at home. So you can download the software, you can download the data, you can run this on your laptop, um, and you can return the results to us. And um, at the moment, we have um, more than a quarter of a million users. We have 1.8 million computers in total. And this gives us effectively 300 teraflops of computing power 24-7. So please, all of you, sign. if you haven't done so, please sign up uh, to this project. Um, and this project also looks for signals not just in gravity waves, but also electromagnetic data. Uh, so because we want to keep the users busy, right? So if we just give them gravity wave signals, they don't find anything. They get discouraged after a while. So we make it interesting. We give them actual signals, um, um, uh, act data which might have actual signals. And one of the successful things was data from uh, Arecibo. And using methods just like I described in the previous slide, you can actually find new pulsars here, which were missed by the radio pulsar. Uh, radio astronomy surveys. All right, so I'm basically out of time, and I think I did a good job of keeping to time. It's five minutes left. So it's a very brief tour of data analysis for gravity waves. Um, so I basically, I discussed some basics of uh, the detectors of the gravity waves, some aspects such as fine spirals and continuous waves. I didn't cover a huge range of topics, so anything, um, so for example, I didn't cover any searches for unmodeled bursts, like from supernovae or from other sources in which you don't know what the waveform is. I didn't cover anything for the stochastic background searches, and I didn't cover anything about multi-detector -de analysis or 
details about the parameter estimation of sky localization. But hopefully, at least you um, give some impression of what um, data analysis in this field is. And hopefully, you ask questions and you look this up yourself. All right, thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.